Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 18th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is off for the next couple of days. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And for the first time on our podcast, and for the first time in... More than 20 years on the commentary masthead, our newly minted contributing editor, Brett Stevens. Hi, Brett. Hi, John. It's actually more like 25 years, but yes. Well, you know, you know, if uh, if you guys know Brett, he's preternaturally young looking. So unlike me, I look like I'm 80. He's in his mid-40s and he looks like he's 20, so I keep forgetting how old he is. But Brett began his career at commentary. Uh, right out of uh, college and uh, and has rejoined us while continuing uh, as the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist that he is, uh, contributor to the New York Times, and is now a contributing editor of commentary. And we're here to discuss Brett's blockbuster piece in the February 2021 issue, which is available for your reading pleasure at commentarymagazine.com, the title of which is Memo to President Biden, Please don't mess up the Abraham Accords. So, Brett, uh, what is it that Joe Biden might be in danger of messing up? Well, uh, I mean, many things. But uh, what I'm hoping is that in at least uh, this one case, he will have the good sense to um, uh, not look the proverbial gift horse in the mouth, to accept that the Trump administration had a signal triumph in the Abraham Accords, which, as I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows, refers to the peace deals that Israel struck last September with Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, but more generally means uh, peace accords uh, that it's negotiating with Morocco, with Sudan, with Oman, and possibly even with Saudi Arabia, effectively spelling the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And what I argue in the piece, uh, John, is that these aren't simply sort of discrete agreements that Israel has has opportunistically struck with with some of its uh, near neighbors in the Arab world, but the accords are also a kind of a revolution in the way in which um, the United States and Israel um, have uh, approached peacemaking in the region. And I think probably the most promising avenue uh, um, as yet, um, as yet uh, entered. So uh, let's hope that the Biden administration doesn't simply retreat to formulas that failed for 50 years and just accepts that this is a, a much better way to achieve some of its own strategic goals. Um, you, you go into the history of, you know, what you call the Arab-Israeli conflict, obviously the conflict with the Palestinian people specifically, uh, continues, but the Arab-Israeli conflict, of course, predates uh, or is is a is a is a leading factor in the creation of the state of Israel and the War of Independence, in which twenty-two Arab satrapies and nations, or soon to be nations at the time, uh, attempted to strangle Israel in its cradle, failed to do so. There was an armistice deal in nineteen forty-nine. Um, and then the peace process, as we understand it, began in the wake of the 1967 Six-Day War when uh, Israel defeated uh, the combined might of the Arab countries arrayed against it, uh, took the West Bank, took Gaza, took the Sinai, and then the West decided that it was the role of the West to do what it could to 
end the conflict in some mass way where Israel and its Arab neighbors, uh, through some peace deal with the Palestinians, could find some kind of a uh, a concord. And of course, uh, it's now 53 years later, and uh, there was peace with Egypt, there was peace with Jordan, there was a kind of cold peace uh, with with a bunch of other, uh, implicit peace with a bunch of other countries. But um, this was something new. What happened here? Can you lay out what was different about the Abraham Accords? Well, I mean, obviously, the great difference is that the uh, Trump administration, for once, took my advice. Um, um, I say that half in jest. Um, what they did is um, they decoupled the Israeli-Arab conflict from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they and that was wise, because so long as solving uh, the Israeli-Arab conflict depended as a precondition on solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, then it was never going to be solved simply because for reasons we can go into, Palestinians are not prepared to live uh, in a serious peace with uh, Israel, at least not at a price that uh, most Israelis are willing to pay. On the other hand, there is this confluence of interests that has become much more notable and obvious in the last seven years between Israel and its Arab, uh, its, its Arab neighbors, um, not only insofar as Iran and the rise of Iran is concerned, but more generally um, insofar as the Arab world has had a kind of reckoning with the failures of its past, failures that have led to misgovernance, uh, extremism, uh, and social collapse. And so that was the promising avenue. And that's the avenue that um, Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo and other members of the Trump administration, for all of my criticisms of them, had the wisdom to, uh, to pursue. It means that it might be possible to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I say might, I'm not sure, but it might be possible to do it from the outside in, as opposed to the previous paradigm, which was trying to go from the inside out, from solving the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and then hoping that dominoes would fall uh, in in the in an outward direction. Um, so the uh, what we have here is an interesting um, discontinuity uh, uh, that represented by the Trump administration. Little hints of it during the uh, second Bush administration. Um, a, a different understanding of what it would mean for the for there to be forward movement in the region, in the most destabilizing region in the world, on uh, getting past these old uh, sclerotic conflicts that seem to be based in nothing. Uh, or uh, based in a based in a in a delusional idea that somehow this one entity uh, there sitting in the Middle East could somehow be extirpated or removed from existence or could be ignored or could be or that these uh, uh, oil rich countries could say, well, you know, there's this one place we really don't like and we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist or we're going to try to destroy it or something like that. Um, and that uh, something else has happened, and the discontinuity, it seems, of the Trump administration was really uh, made possible by the misbehaviors and miscalculations of the Obama 
administration. Can you? Yeah, I mean, look, the Obama administration, a few years ago, a friend of mine joked that Obama had actually uh, deserved uh, the Nobel Prize he won in 2009, just after he became president, because he so enraged um, Arab and Israeli leaders alike that he created a kind of a surprising um, unity of, of views uh, uh, between them. And in fact, that's the anecdote with which I start this piece, John, this, this um, uh, visit um, that we had in, at the, when I was at the Wall Street Journal in 2013 with Prince Awalid bin Talal, uh, not hitherto known as particularly friendly to Israel, suddenly saying, hey, you know, Saudi interests and Israeli interests are actually totally aligned. They were aligned against the Obama administration's outreach to um, to Tehran. They were aligned in their disgust with uh, what Obama had done in Egypt in 2011, first abandoning the Mubarak regime, then having this sort of halfway embrace of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, government. They were aligned in their dismay at Obama's general effort to minimize, if not uh, erase, America's footprint in the Middle East and stand behind its allies against uh, against its enemies. And so that sort of got the ball rolling, forgive the cliche, in, in, in creating a new sort of sense of shared interest. I mean, the reality, and this is a point that I don't think can't be stressed enough, if, if raison d'etat had governed the calculations of most Arab regimes for the past uh, 60 or 70 years, they would have uh, made their peace with Israel a long, long time ago. Um, and that didn't happen in part because this fantasy uh, was maintained in the West and in the United States that, first of all, you had to solve the Palestinian issue and then everything else would fall into place. And for a long time, that was politically convenient for Arab regimes because it served to deflect from their own misgovernance. But another thing that happened in the last 10 years or so is that it was increasingly hard for those Arab states not to sort of look at their own failures in the face and start to reckon with them. Only happened really when they realized that the alternative to meaningful um, reform, and I don't just mean policy reform, but a kind of a reform of their mentality, um, failure to do that was going to result in something like Libya or Yemen or Syria or some of the other uh, calamities that have befallen the region in, uh, in the last few years. So, Brett, in, in reading your piece and in hearing you now discuss the, the kind of fantasies um, that had reigned um, in the U.S. treatment of the region um, pr- prior to the Trump administration, I started to wonder if maybe, and you can comment on this, tell me what you think, there's a, a kind of a, a silver lining to our current unrest in the, in the sense that given our extensive domestic troubles, we're less likely to indulge in the kind of foreign policy fantasy that we can, that we sort of you know can take on in times of uh, more rel- relative stability at home. You know, it's it's a kind of you know that kind of ambition. Um, seem you know, there's been a kind of realism, not in the foreign policy traditional foreign policy sense, but just in sort of reality sense, a kind of realism imposed on us on the, and sort of the limits of of what we can do at the moment that might curb. Um, the the sort of worst the instinct. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, look, I uh, um, 
I don't think any one of us wishes that America should be so um, consumed in its own travails, uh, economic or social or whatever, uh, that we can't um, sort of attend to our responsibilities as the security guarantor of, you know, the liberal international order, if you will. Um, you're right in your sense that maybe the Obama administration will say, you know, this one we can leave well, we can we can uh, uh, let well enough alone. Uh, but I still want the Biden administration to understand, A, that these accords are actually not just the basis for uh, achieving um, uh, a more peaceful Middle East, but it actually can be the, the, the basis for achieving a much grander strategic vision. You know, Obama's idea of pivoting to Asia, right, as, a, as the next sort of um, center of gravity in, in America's uh, global interests is not a crazy idea, right? I mean, we do face our greatest geopolitical challenge today, not in the Persian Gulf, but in the South China Sea. Uh, not in the Straits of Hormuz, um, but in the uh, in the Formo, you know, in the Formosa Straits, in the in the waters between Taiwan and, and and China. How can we do that? Well, we can do that perhaps by um, accepting that a robust alliance between a powerful Israel uh, and its Arab friends can at least fill the gap for us as we sort of shift resources and attention over to the Far East. Uh, and that we're better served uh, uh, with that approach than trying to uh, untie the Gordian knot of Israeli-Palestinian peace or otherwise uh, devote immense resources to uh, to that region. So if you'll read the article, you'll notice that I'm trying to make the case not necessarily to commentary readers, of course to commentary readers, but not only to commentary readers, but also to the Biden administration itself, why a democratic foreign policy is well served by um by uh, advancing and sustaining the Abraham Accords. <clears throat> so I wonder, I mean, looking forward a little bit, obviously the Obama administration had these grand plans to reorient American posture towards Asia and the Middle East interrupted. Um, to some extent that happened to the Trump administration too. It's likely that this will happen to the Obama administration as well as Iran becomes and is remains the chief geostrategic problem in the region for us and our allies and their efforts to acquire nuclear and fissionable, fissionable material and nuclear technology suggest it's going to be the big problem in the next four years, too. So, you know, judging by what you're talking about, the Obama administration, how it reoriented policy in the in the Middle East, it required sort of some creative thinking on their parts, sort of a solipsistic kind of creative thinking, but nevertheless creative insofar as they wanted to reorient the region more towards Tehran, give Tehran more authority in Iraq, provide the militias under Tehran's control with more power to police the region and give them some cover, some strategic cover to get out. And that facility, you know, created the conditions that led to the Sunni kingdoms and the Sunni states to get really paranoid about the region. So it was kind of a Kirkpatrick, ab abandonment of the Kirkpatrick-like double standard um, in favor of a single standard. Um, which turned out to be relatively disastrous for the region, but good in the long term for for our our geostrategic interests. Does the Obama does the Biden administration encounter those same problems? Will it look at this region and say, "Well, we need to be creative with this thing. We need to find some way out of armed conflict with Iran and its allies and its proxies." And 
try again to reorient the region around some sort of a power sharing relationship where you can have this, you know, where these two conglomerations of states balance against each other in some sort of a, a stable dynamic. Um, that seems to us to be crazy. But from the perspective of the White House, it's not entirely crazy. Theoretically, it should make a lot of sense. It just created the conditions in which, you know, that we, we facilitated this peace between Israel and the Sunni states. So it's it might it might seem kind of attractive to them, right, to pursue an Obama-style um, rapprochement. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think, um, uh, you know, one of my great worries about the Biden administration is that they really have learned uh, nothing in their four years out of office. And by that, I mean, most of the most of the senior Biden people were were seniors or deputy seniors in the um, uh, in 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 the pre in the Obama administration. And I think they're the, the people like Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken are going to have to really stop and think, you know, what have we learned over the last uh, four years and, and what needs to, uh, what needs to change? I mean, the idea that. Uh, tilting toward uh, Iran is is a good strategy for the United States, uh, or at least creating what you suggested of this potentially stable balance strikes me as totally insane. Uh, among among many reasons, uh, it's an invitation at some point for um, Israel and and the Arab states to potentially go to war against Iran, which is I, I assume not what the Obama what the what the incoming Biden administration uh, is is hoping for. I mean secondly, the United States still does have major strategic interests in the region even as it pivots towards um, uh, the, the Pacific. One of them is it can't allow 40% of the world's um, oil production, to um, either be put in jeopardy or come under uh, the dominion of a hostile foreign power. Um, and that, that is, is sort of what they're playing with if they try to once again embolden Iran. The third thing is, you know, one of the lessons of the Iran deal is that uh, far from sort of uh, advancing the cause of the moderates in Tehran, uh, it turbocharged Iranian uh, intervention in Yemen, in Syria, uh, elsewhere in, in the region. It was a massively destabilizing, uh, uh, massively destabilizing factor. And the final point is, you know, we're reminded again in the last few days that simply asking the Iranians politely to put their nuclear program in the storage locker for a few years uh, doesn't solve uh, doesn't really solve your problems. On the contrary, I mean, it kicks the can down the road, possibly, for uh, for a couple of years. But the speed with which Iran has been able to reconstitute its nuclear programs, despite uh, um, all of the um, subversive uh, covert efforts against it, uh, really just tells you how little that deal uh, actually uh, actually achieves. So we need some kind of uh, uh, new deal. So I, I think the Biden administration probably needs to spend a few months sort of doing a deep rethink of where it wants to go in the region and presumably simply returning to the JCPOA, which I don't think is really seriously in the cards. Maybe maybe it is, but not seriously in the cards uh, is a is a is an attractive option for them. So, well, I have a brief follow up. Go, go ahead. Real quick. Um, so the, the obstacles there then are domestic um 
constituents on Demo- on Joe Biden's left who regard, regard all of this as a problem to be fixed, who regard um, American uh, foreign policy orientation towards Israel as amoral, as certainly strategically inept, who see Americans, America's new burgeoning energy independence in the form of hydraulic fracturing technology to be a problem to be fixed. All of this has facilitated these conditions abroad, but the Biden administration is going to have to at, at least not maybe not aggressively, but tacitly go to war with its left flank to preserve all of these achievements. Can I, I just because what I wanted to say adds to that. Um, there's a there's another element in that, which is also that the left has now become um, very anti-Saudi um, uh, in the wake of the, the killing of uh, Khashoggi. And also because Trump has, um, you know, tied himself more closely to uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And I think that also risks possibly um, uh, the, 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 what had, had. I remember when being anti-Saudi was a right wing, uh, uh, was a right wing idea. Well, 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 there are certainly good reasons to be anti-Saudi in in some respects, but, um, but I, but I, I feared that that may imperil what had seemed like a kind of inevitability that, that Saudi Arabia would um, become to be included in the Abraham Accords. Yeah, that that is that that is certainly true. On the other hand, I don't sense that the real p- passion and energies of the left are as engaged in the fine print of Middle East diplomacy as they used to be. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm deluded and and mistaken, but it's not as it was in the first decade after nine eleven. Kind of the the, the central animating impulse in in you know left wing. Uh, in, 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 in left-wing thinking, it's, it's, more, it's more of an afterthought. Um, do I see the Biden administration sort of taking a page from the left and trying to uh, divorce ourselves from the Saudi kingdom as, we, as the Obama administration wound up doing with the Mubarak regime? Not really. I mean, maybe uh, you, can never, you can never really forecast the future, but I'm, I'm not really sure that's uh, that's what's going to happen. So, look, I'm keeping an open mind. I'm, I'm hoping that this administration sort of thinks, you know, we, we don't actually have to simply play the same chess game using the same moves and the same pieces uh, with the expectation of getting a different result. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I mean, you know, the the question, I guess, here goes to uh, whether the uh, the squad, you know, whether – uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and um, Ayanna Presley and uh, uh, Ilhan Omar, um, their uh, uh, ideological disgust uh, with Israel, which uh, is all well and good in their own in their own uh, heads and in the world of uh, progressive politics, but doesn't really seem to have much. Uh, meaning, except as a kind of uh, a moral garment that they can, right. that they can put on and say that they're you know that they're talking about oppression and and colonialism and apartheid. Um, will will the Biden administration be able to resist that moral suasion uh, in the same way that, in an odd way, this is a very complicated point to make, but it needs to resist the moral suasion surrounding the Saudis and Khashoggi in this sense, which is obviously we, we, we know or we think we know that Mohammed bin Salman, the most powerful person in Saudi Arabia, 
ordered the killing and dismemberment of this uh, critic uh, in Turkey um, who was living in America, you know, was basically under American protection, though he was in Turkey. Um, and the, the notion that the entire, that the politics of the entire region and, you know, a, a once in a century possibility for the resetting of the diplomatic map might be interfered with because of an event, something that happened to one person in one place by an admittedly somebody who, the only thing we really take away from it is that you can't really make a deal with a guy who is so crazy and so that psychopathic that he would order the, the slaughter of somebody in a, in a diplomatic consulate in, in another country just for, for being nasty to him. And maybe that would be like, you know what, you got to keep your hands off this guy because you can't trust him. And on the other hand, you know, throughout diplomatic history, you have to make dirty deal. You have to make deals with people whose hands are dirty. Right. I mean, look, there's no turning, looking away from the fact that what happened with Khashoggi was uh, demented and evil um, and and not entirely surprising given the fact that Saudi Arabia, um, it's sort of new quasi-reformist credentials notwithstanding, is a um, violent, dangerous, and repressive, uh, uh, and in many ways, uh, lawless place. Um, uh, We should also bear in mind that Iran has also been kidnapping journalists uh, in foreign countries and bringing them back for, uh, uh, for executions. I'm not sure if I've seen the squad uh, or, you know, liberals in the media denounce that with uh, with with equal fervor, but look, the United States in the Middle East um, has to have a kind of a clear-eyed view that in the long term we want to encourage moderates and reformers. In the near term, we have to deal with the uh, the world as it is. Um, and outside of Israel, we don't have particularly morally pristine uh, choices in terms of our pursuit of. Uh, national uh, of of the national interest. Um, my my sense is that overall, uh, even this administration understands that there is um, you know a moral a humongous moral difference between sort of softly authoritarian monarchies like Morocco and the United Arab Emirates uh, and um, you know uh, Kuwait or Bahrain. Uh, and uh, and what we're dealing with with Iran, which is a revolutionary regime that's ambitions uh, are not only uh, genocidally anti-Semitic, but ult- ultimately aimed directly at the heart of heart of the West. And we can't remain neutral between those two uh, two sides. Uh, this is this is should not be a tough call for the left, which happily made common cause with Joe Stalin. <laughs> Uh, you know, when he was busy, you know, shortly after his slaughter of millions of kulaks in Ukraine. Um, you know, you don't really go into this in the piece, but I guess one ma- massive difference between uh, the incoming Biden administration and the Obama administration from which it springs is that there was this deep personal antipathy that Barack Obama had for Bibi Netanyahu. And it, it cannot be uh, overstated how much effect that had on policy in a way that one really wishes, uh, one really sort of expects leaders not to quite personalize policy in this fashion. Michael Oren's memoir just talks about this 
the heat, the waves of disgust that sort of, you know, emanated from the, from the Oval Office toward Netanyahu that just colored all Israeli, all American reactions to Israeli behavior. And I guess judging from the way Biden talks about Bibi, he does not have that feeling. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's funny that the, the Trump administration, in my view, was so bad that it sometimes makes me forget how bad the Obama administration was and many of the things, especially many things I care deeply, deeply about. And that's absolutely right. There was this kind of bizarre personal venom that Obama felt for uh, for Bibi, which never seemed to crop up in any of his very sort of matter of fact relationships with other leaders. I mean, I remember in the last year of his administration, he was wantonly insulted at his uh, at his arrival in in China by the Chinese leaders who wouldn't put out sort of a proper red carpet for him but that didn't seem to color his views of Xi or his efforts at a at least his first 6 years of efforts at a reset with uh with uh Vladimir uh with Vladimir Putin and I don't sense from Biden this kind of screaming personal animosity it might color the views of some of the people lower in the uh, you know, lower down in 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 his administration, but um, you know. So again, I, I think it's worth thinking about the Biden administration differently from the Obama administration. Thinking that it might have learned something, that the temperament of the man on top is fundamentally different. His experience is fundamentally different, and you know, as uh, Bob Dylan once said, things have changed. Uh, we're in a different world uh, today than we were in 2016. Bobby Zimmerman from Hibbing, Minnesota. Yep. Getting the last word. So, Brett Stevens, thank you very much. Congratulations on joining commentary for the second time in your well, career. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of this noble crew. Um, noble and uh, uh, and uh, uh, stalwart and, um, you know, right about most things for many, many years. So, um, <laughs> you can't beat being right about most things for many years. Anyway, I'm not thank you. But most things. <laughs> so thanks, thanks so much, and we will we will have you back on again. Uh, I look forward to it. Okay, and uh, guys, um, we have uh, a new sponsor today, Upstart. So look, you know that credit card, the one you're afraid to look at to see what the balance is. If you've been avoiding your debt, it's time to confront it, and Upstart can help you face it. And finally pay it off. Last year showed us that you never know what life is going to throw at you. And if you use credit cards to pay for unexpected expenses, it can be overwhelming to manage that debt. You can take control with Upstart so you know exactly what to expect. It's the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online, whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds Smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score with a five-minute online rate check. You can see your rate upfront for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day and can receive funds as fast as one business day. If debt is taking over your life, it's time to get a fresh start with Upstart. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash commentary. That's upstart.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash commentary. 
So, gentlemen, uh, the news just never stops, does it? Um, here's my question. Uh, you know, yesterday we had this alarmist story in the middle of the day, terrifying story about how the FBI was actually doing background checks on 25,000 National Guardsmen to make sure that there wasn't, uh, you know, a lone wolf in the pack who would attack on uh, on Inauguration Day uh, as part of the of the 25,000 people who have been sent to the nation's capital to secure it uh, after the riot on January 6th. And then when you read the story, it turns out that there's no indication whatsoever that anybody, that this wasn't the result of intelligence or anything that led them to believe that there was some kind of clear and present danger. It's just a kind of, um, you know, they're being uh, super careful. So uh, what is worse in this context? Is it worse that they're being super careful and then they're leaking stories about how they're doing these background checks on 25,000 people because we can no longer trust that our armed forces are loyal, that people in our armed forces are loyal to the government of the United States and its continuity uh, in the transitional period? Um, or is this just, have we moved from a genuine proper fear of, you know, uh, unrest and uh, civil, uh, misbehavior uh to a kind of hysteria um I, you know i think part of the problem here is that in a crisis situation all choices are somewhat bad i mean uh, uh but made bad by the fact that many of them are necessary um even though they are um they incur their own problems and this is this is one of them right so being vigilant is good in the broad sense but um of course then brings with it um, the, the the problem of hysteria. It reminds me um, quite a bit of uh, what happened after 9-11. I mean, also there was this other story over the weekend about um, police having uh, stopped someone uh, by the Capitol with uh, um, uh, guns. and 500 a, rounds of ammunition and a gun. And it, cash turned out, right, right. Yeah. And, it, and it turned out to be... And false credentials. And false credentials, right. And it turned out to be um, uh, much less of a story uh, than that. He was... He was employed in security in some sense and may and the credentials weren't false they just right weren't, they, just, they weren't, yeah, they weren't he where he wasn't he had gotten lost he crossed right. the wrong bridge he right. lives in he lives 70 miles away from dc it was a new job right so this is another example and it, it reminds me of of what happened after 9-11 if you recall um and right after the attack on the towers and the pentagon there were all these stories a van was found on this bridge with uh, a number of weapons in it and uh, people were seen conspiring here uh and chatter and there was chatter picked up there um if that that happens um i want to pull on that thread a little bit because in that ap story there was this line which lacks a lot of specificity the AP gets- story about the about the twenty five thousand about the the fact the um era, the, uh, nas- the threat from national guard and uniform police officers quote so far only a couple of current active duty national guards members have been arrested in connection with the capital assault is that two is that more i'd like a, i'd like something much more specific there because two is too many nevertheless uh, and I don't want to minimize this sort of thing, but what Abe you're describing um, is is the, as this epochal event like 9-11. And I think that this was, I think that the sacking of the Capitol was this kind of seminal event that will last in part because of the psychological trauma associated with it. We've seen, I, you know, if you, if you're on social media for a given amount of time, you'll see some very prominent members of the press who have lost their minds, who are completely and thoroughly radicalized 
by the events at the Capitol on January 6th. And I don't think that's an irresponsible approach to this sort of thing, because it was such a seminal event, as I said, such an assault and an insult uh, on and to the uh, American political ethos that it does justify, if not necessitate, that kind of psychological orientation towards this sort of thing, that, that the threat is everywhere. That it's that it could possibly be around the, the next corner, and, and perpetual vigilance and overreaction is justified in response to the, the gravity of this threat. Now, law enforcement is facing just from what we've seen in the media. Law enforcement is facing threats in fifty states from um, white nationalist militia types who are engaged in chatter online about this sort of thing, and it's incumbent on the on law enforcement to figure out what's aspirational and what's intentional and that has a design behind it. And they don't know, and we don't know. So being radicalized seems like a justified response. But at the same time, you're you're clearly sowing the seeds for a conflict, a domestic conflict, that will last for a generation at least, if, it's, if 9-11 is the appropriate parallel. And it might be. I mean, at the same time, you know, while one is, I, or I am inclined when I see this kind of thing, and I see the posturing, I mean, the posturing of, of uh, you know, of, 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 liberals and leftists who are you know who who are talking about this in these apocalyptic terms uh because it also reinforces their priors and gives them um an ideological leg up on 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 the people that they're trying to destroy nonetheless as the days pass these videos come out these uh the New Yorker, the video that's uh, that's on the New Yorker's website by Luke Mogelson of what what went on inside. Uh, the Capitol building and Alec uh, McGillis's pretty remarkable story on ProPublica where he watched what appear to be hundreds, if not thousands of little video clips and things that were on Parler. Um, Remember Parler got uh, shut down, but it was on a WordPress platform and someone was able to hack it and get everything that was ever on Parler and, and put it somewhere. And so McGillis watched all these videos and the story, you know, I hate using pop culture analogy because people always in these cases say, oh, it's like a horror, it's like a disaster movie. But the the video and stuff looks exactly like the scenes in The Dark Knight Returns when the mob takes over New York City after, you know, if you, if you guys have seen The Dark Knight Returns, uh, it is a movie about um, how New York, uh, a terrorist basically isolates the island of Manhattan and turns it into a it's like Robespierre. It's the great terror and they take over Manhattan and everybody is forced to live in this kind of totalitarian state. And, uh, and there is a court and, you know, people are sort of in, in the main court building in New York, some basically Robespierre like figure takes over and starts sending people out on the ice to, to die. Um, and it it, it kind of looked like that. Like I've never seen anything quite as you know with the with the guy with the uh, you know Q Shaman sitting in the in the uh, speaker's chair and stuff like that. Or the you know in the Senate chamber carrying around. It had that. It has that look of a kind of nightmarish dystopian movie come to life more than anything else that I've I've ever seen. And it. Um, and so in that sense, some of this is getting worse, not better. You know, it's not like, oh, look, I mean, they sort of lucky shot. They kind of got in. The things got out of hand. You know, let's not over, let's not overreact to this. Um, and yet, I don't know that you can really overreact to it. 
on the on the other hand, you know, yeah, I think you can overreact yeah. to it. Well, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. uh, it, it's over- a lot of imagination to see to envision what an overreaction to this no. thing look well, like, I and mean, I, I and I regard this as one as a, as a great assault on the American. American Civic Compact that it requires a robust response from every institution. Well, the overreaction is not political. The overreaction is cultural and, interestingly enough, uh, speech-related. I mean, I would say that it seems very clear that uh, the direction of the how are we going to stop this all from happening or how are we going to nip it in the bud or something all involves the quashing of or the delegitimization of speech. Now, you know, you do not, as we know, you don't have unlimited free speech to scream fire in a crowded theater, right? That's the famous test case. You can't provoke a riot, and that's literally what happened. And so that's why the shutdown of Parler or sorry, the deplatforming of you know, Trump on Twitter or something uh, makes sense. But, you know, when I, when I read this former head of Facebook, when I read that this guy went on Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources and said... You know, we have to do something about the access that people are getting to other people's brains. We have to, you know, we have to shut them down. Or Ben Smith in the New York Times recently doing this piece saying that, you know, the problem is Fox. Fox is, Fox created uh, all of this. Um, uh, And and after, you know, 20 years of basically anti-free speech activism on college campuses, drenching uh, the minds of the elite in the idea that there are worse things than for, that freedom of speech is bad because it's hurtful, speech is hurtful, and all of that. That, I think, is where this is heading. Uh, and I'm not talking about the, oh, it's not fair that Trump doesn't have a platform, actually. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about this idea that uh, uh, conservative speech is uniquely hateful, Um and, and uh, you know, uh, that is where this is going. Um, now, I think I, we, we even agreed that there's something different in uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, which involved, you know, I mean, I think they talked about more than 20 million people. So you're talking about a whole different level of, um, you know, of, of, of civic involvement than, you know, the, than the scenes on the, uh, on the Hill on January 6th. But of course, they really weren't directed by the president of the United States. That's where that's the different. That on the one hand, the Black Lives Matter thing was was much more uh, was much larger, and there was much more criminality actually, and much more you know destruction, it's and more, it was more death too, and more death. And on the other hand, it wasn't poli- it wasn't organized led, and these stories about how senior White House officials. Mo Brooks said that a senior White House official contacted him, the congressman, uh, to ask him to go speak at the rally on uh, the day before the rally. Someone on the public payroll was or, was organizing the Trump rally on, on January 6th. That's not just a violation of the Hatch Act. I don't know what – that's a violation of, you know, everything that is good in, in the world. Um, so I'm not. So there is something different here, but but this notion somehow that you know that 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 something needs to be done about Fox, something needs to be done about OAN, something needs to be done about what does it mean needs to be done? But that is the phrase that was used by this former 
Facebook guy on Brian Stelter's show, you know, and one would caution such people that when you, you know, there's no stopping this. You know, you start saying something needs to be done about people whose speech is bad, and then they come after your speech too. Yeah, and, you know, uh, those on the right who have uh, shown some sympathy, varying degrees of sympathy for uh, the monstrous um, assault on the Capitol have wasted no time in seizing on these calls to uh, crack down on speech to further exacerbate um, the rage on, on among these people, among among the people on the right. You know, this is saying, see, we told you this is this is this is what this is why we can no longer afford to voice our grievances in through the through ordinary peaceful channels where they're, they're not even open to us anymore. Yeah, if we're going to go down the road of root causes, what we're witnessing on the right here is say a mirroring of the kind of uh, profound persecution complex that the left has turned into a form of currency over the course of a generation. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about that point earlier, and you know, I think you can make an argument that um, perhaps you know, not on the country, but if you just look at the political landscape, um, Donald Trump's most lasting impact is to have turned the right into the left, um, beginning from the very start, beginning with his adoption of identity politics, um, but uh, repurposed uh, as white identity politics, stretching to the idea that elections can't be trusted and are rigged and that you don't accept your loss. And finally, embracing and promoting the kind of... um, uh, violence, mass violence that that we saw at the Capitol. So the weirdness there, though, is that judging by the numbers alone, the effort on that part, and I think there was an effort, I wrote about it in my book, that the president tried to weaponize identity politics, adopt a version of it for himself, is that it didn't work, is that the electorate had not responded in that way. We don't have blocks of white voters behaving like blocks of, uh, of an ethnic uh, class or a sort of a tribe, um, which you would think would lead Democrats and particularly the left, not just Democrats, the left generally activist left, which has no doesn't really have an affinity for Democrats as we understand them um, to sort of retrofit what we saw on the in the Capitol in the sixth into this narrative. Our colleague Christine shot out this piece that was in the, the Washington Post. It's probably the essential example of this sort of thing where you had African-American participants in this riot and saying that they're just evincing a form of whiteness that is underexplored and unidentified like you multicultural white part of darkness, like a sociologist here and identify, you know, this in an anthropological way, this kind of whiteness that persists among, um, among uh, African-Americans and minorities generally. And it is on its face, superficially insane and silly. Um, but it has so much cachet on the on the left. It's so powerful, an uh, organizing theory and a theory of everything that they they can't let go of it. Right, but it's not just that. I mean, it's 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 extraordinarily self defeating in this sense, which is you're right that white voters do not behave as white voters. However, if uh, if if it is viewed as praiseworthy that 96 to 97% of Democrats vote in one direction and not the uh, black Democrat blacks vote, African-Americans vote for the democratic party in one direction. That, that is the key to democratic uh, political success. If the, if the logic is that it is proper for, for a minority group to vote in a block, to be like ultra Orthodox Jews who vote 1412 to nothing in 
in the town of Muncie or New City uh, in in New York because the because the the Rav tells them whom to vote for and they do it on, as a block in order to de- demonstrate their political power. The more you go down this road, the and and the more praiseworthy you make it appear that this is how one is supposed to behave. Uh, the more you will create almost necessarily the conditions under which there could be a white vote. And if you do that, and the white vote is Republican, the Democratic Party is finished because white people make up 76% of the population of the United States. And I know that what people say is, oh, this isn't happening. We're heading inexorably to a multicultural future. This is the past. Trump is evoking a past where white people are in charge and blah, 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 and all of that. Well, you know, it may be the past. It's not the past yet. We are not in the multicultural future yet. And a lot can be done, as we just saw in the last four years. A lot can be done in the in the non-multicultural present uh, if, you know, if you, and if it, if it had been done more cleverly and less vulgarly and... I mean, to put it, to give you an example of this, not to get totally insanely dystopian and using literary examples, but, um, or, you know, cultural examples, but uh, Michelle Wellebeck's novel Submission posits an Islamic takeover of France. And the secret of the Islamic takeover of France, it's not really a very good book, but it's a very provocative book, is, of course, that it's not that the Islamists who are, who are taking over France are mean and ugly and nasty and terrorist. They're nice. They're, they're, they're kind. They're friendly. They're a friendly face. They use the logic and language of, of, of post-liberalism and they want to just, you know, be welcoming and thoughtful and, 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 and attractive and all of that, kind of like a mirror image of Martine Le Pen or something like that. You know, he's the, the head, the head of this party is like a is a lovely person with great manners and all of this, and then he starts slowly seducing people like the narrator with the idea that you know what if you join us if you convert we'll get you a fifteen year old wife it's great you know you you know you're like you're 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 forty five years old you're masturbating alone in your apartment you know your life is going nowhere we'll uh, we'll fix you up everything will be good you know that so I I only bring this up to say that there's this notion somehow that we're we're um, you know always to get past Trump and we're out of the woods into a wonderful multicultural future uh, is is pretty demented, I think. Um, and with that, not that I'm sure that they would really enjoy this transition, I want to talk to you about our second new um, new sponsor, uh, Bambi. Because look, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can charge HR from your biggest, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E. 
dot com slash commentary spelled bam to the b-e-e dot com slash commentary and we thank bambi for sponsoring the commentary magazine podcast um so we are going to have a new president in two days and uh i commend to people uh not that i'm often in in this in this realm but if you if you want sort of uh, uh gossipy horror stories go to axios and read jonathan swan's i think it is now up to four parts but this account of uh of uh of of the trump uh trump and the trump people how how they got out so far on a limb on the stolen election front um and how trump started from being relatively uh cool-eyed though full of in looking for some way to uh, make the case that the election had been stolen and how he, like everybody, he was actually seduced by the conspiracy theories of uh, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and others and Lynn Wood uh, into uh, believing almost anything that could be, uh, could be said to him. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's good. It's good reading. I will say, um, even though it's, you know, by evil liberal media people. Um so I guess with that, we will uh, close up shop until tomorrow when we will again not have Christine with us. But on Wednesday, uh, we will be doing our show after uh, the inauguration and the inaugural speech. And I believe, Noah, am I right, that we are going to be joined by Megan McCain? I mean, that's the plan. That's the plan. The plan is that Megan McCain... Uh, when we is, tease guests, it never works out. So that's hopefully, true. that's right. That's right. So hopefully, this time it will work out. But yes, Megan McCain, uh, who is has been very uh, generous in her support of this podcast on 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 Twitter and elsewhere, uh, will be our guest on Wednesday. So uh, until tomorrow, for uh, for Abe and Noah and the absent Christine, I'm John Pothorts. Keep the candle burning.